Good evening. It's a great pleasure to see so many people here tonight uh, and for me to be introducing Professor Wallace Hadrill to give this year's Ronald Syme Lecture, one of the major events in this university's classical calendar. As most of you here will know, Sir Ronald Syme, the holder of the Camden Chair of Ancient History at Oxford, was a fellow at Wolfson from the time of his retirement from the chair in 1970 until his death in 1989 at the age of 86. The book of essays edited by our own Roger Tomlin, which was published to celebrate his centenary, described him as the greatest Roman historian in the English-speaking world since Gibbon. He was knighted in 1959 and given the Order of Merit in 1978. His mastery of Roman antiquity was legendary and unparalleled. Since I became president of Wolfson in 2008, the Syme Lecture has been given by Professor William Harris, Professor Susan Tregiari, Dame Averill Cameron, and Professor Dennis Feeney. I'm delighted to add to that roll call of distinguished names the name of Andrew Wallace Hadrill, one of the most renowned, learned, accessible, and influential experts in Roman archaeology and in Roman social and cultural history. Educated at Oxford, his career has taken him from Cambridge, Leicester, and Reading to running the British School at Rome, and then back to Cambridge to the Mastership of Sydney Sussex College and the Chair in Roman Studies. It ranges from editing the Journal of Roman Studies to heading the Herculaneum Conservation Project and appearing on PBS to tell the world why Herculaneum should not be eclipsed by Pompeii. Among his many awards and honours, he has an OBE for services to Anglo-Italian cultural relations and he is a fellow of the British Academy. His grand list of publications began with his book on Suetonius in 1983 and includes patronage in ancient society, Augustan Rome, the social structure of the Roman house, houses and society in Pompeii and Herculaneum, the British School at Rome, and Rome's cultural revolution. He has also edited and contributed to many volumes and companions on the domestic and cultural life of the Romans, on patronage, and on the Augustan Empire. His most recent work, the widely acclaimed Herculaneum Past and Future, wonderfully illustrated and presented, recreates the buried city on which he is the world's greatest expert with remarkable scholarly detail and imaginative power. As a scholar, Andrew Wallace Hadrill has always been open to interdisciplinarity, moving between archaeology, anthropology, sociology, social history, and the reading of places and buildings as texts. What we draw from his work is not only a dazzling scholarly excavation into spaces and sites, places and cultures, it is also a recreation of how people led their lives, moment by moment, day by day. This interest takes us right back to the subject of his first book, Suetonius, of whom he says, whether as a scholar, antiquarian, or biographer, he was interested in how people lived. So it is with considerable human interest, as well as intellectual anticipation, that I invite him to give the 2012 Ronald Syme Lecture on the Sun King and his court, from Rome to Versailles and back. Hermione, thank you so much for a, a, a most generous introduction. 
And thank you for the deep honour of, of being asked to give the Syme lecture. Um, I was never taught by Syme, but uh, he certainly inspired me. And um, out of respect to Syme, I am not using any slides today. Um, those of you who know me know that usually there is um, a projector and a PowerPoint presentation. Um, I don't think Syme would have approved uh, it's a real pleasure to be talking in this room, which I remember from, it's nearly 40 years ago, something like 38 years ago. My wife, or my to-be wife, and I attended a performance of Bach's cello suites by Rostropovich, who was pretty well here, and, and very moving it, it, it was. So it's, it's wonderful to be here. Now, you're all wondering what on earth I'm going to talk about. I know it's a bit of a mystery, um, but you will rapidly find out. In 1662, 24 years into his extraordinary 72-year reign, from 1638 to 1715, Louis XIV, who on several occasions had already had himself portrayed as a Roman general, staged a sort of parade I quote from a contemporary source. There were five quadrilles, each wearing different colors and representing different nations. Romans, Persians, Turks, Moors, Russians, each under a leader of the highest rank. So, no prizes for guessing who were the goodies and who were the baddies here. The king led the first troop representing the Romans. His device was the sun dispersing clouds. Of the knights following him, the first bore a mirror reflecting the rays of the sun on his shield. The next, a laurel branch, this tree being sacred to the sun, i.e. Apollo. The third, an eagle with its eyes turned towards the sun. Had I told you this was an account not of the reign of the sun king, but of Augustus, you might almost, as long as you weren't a Roman historian, you might almost have swallowed it. Augustus, who built a temple of the sun god Apollo in the middle of his house, who was flattered when men shielded their eyes from the brightness of his sun-like radiance, whose front door was decorated with laurels, whom we see on coins, admittedly after his death, with the radiant crown of the sun's rays, and whom we see, and surely Louis XIV saw, because it was in the Louvre, on the Grand Camet, Grand Camet de France, he's portrayed with the eagle of Jupiter at his feet. And given all these parallels, you might be forgiven for supposing my title means that I'm going to talk about the influence of the Roman imperial court on Louis XIV and Versailles. But then I would be well out of my depth. Instead, rather like Perse McGarrigal in David Lodge's Small World, who, having reached a dead end with his thesis on the influence of Shakespeare on T.S. Eliot, flipped his theme with great success to the influence of T.S. Eliot on Shakespeare. <laughs> I want to talk not about the influence of Rome on Versailles, but the, that of Versailles on Rome. And rather like Perse McGarrigal, I hope to convince you I'm not a complete fraud that while Rome may have influenced Versailles in historical fact, in some rather superficial ways, Versailles offers us a mirror in the reflection of which we can better understand Rome. 
My theme is the nature of an absolutist court. I shall argue that Versailles, thanks above to the extraordinary memoirs of the Duke de Saint-Simon, offers important insights into the Palatium of Rome. In doing so, I'm encouraged by two authorities, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius and the historian Sir Ronald Syme. Let's deal with them in turn. For Marcus, in his meditations, all the world was a stage, or at least the imperial court was such. Put before your eyes, he says, whole dramas and scenes that are similar, such as you know from your own experience and from reading ancient history, like the whole court of Hadrian and the whole court of Antoninus and the whole court of Philip, Alexander, and Croesus. For all of these were of the same sort, only with different people. Marcus's own, own experience told him uh, that the courts of Hadrian and Antoninus Pius were dramas like that of his own reign. His reading of history told him that not only the Macedonian courts of Philip and Alexander were similar, but even the Lydian court of Croesus. For all the profound social and historical differences between Rome and Macedon, there was something about the nature of a royal court that meant the stage and the drama were of the same nature. Marcus's observation is an invitation to look at other courts in other societies, like that of Versailles, and ask where the drama had something in common. And that was what I had in mind when, some 27 years ago, the editors of the 10th volume of the Cambridge Ancient History invited me to contribute a chapter on the imperial court. At the time, I expressed pleasure and surprise that the imperial court should be identified as a theme at all. Coming fresh from Suetonius, in whose pages the Aula Kaiseris is a recurrent topic, not only of political but social life, I felt there was something to say. Yet in many ways, the imperial court was a non-theme, though, of course, Fergus Miller had very recently taught us to see emperors and their role in a new light. At the time, uh, uh, please excuse this autobiographical self-indulgence. At the time, I was a young lecturer at Leicester University. This is relevant. And I found myself as much in the company of historians and sociologists as of the rather rare classicists there. I was delighted to notice a copy of a book which came out in its English version just two years previously, Norbert Elias's The Court Society. The German original, Die Herfische Gesellschaft, came out sometime before in 1969. Elias had been, as chance had it, a lecturer at Leicester University, so it felt like a contribution from the home team. I was at once gripped by his account of the court of Louis XIV, which seemed to me to offer insight after insight into what Marcus Aurelius called the drama and scene of the imperial court. In particular, I was charmed by his use of the memoirs of Saint-Simon and started to read them, finding other trenchant pas passages which could have been descriptions of life at the Roman imperial court. Around this time, I found myself at a conference with Sir Ronald Syme. Wishing to share my experience, but guessing he wouldn't be much interested in the work of a German sociologist, I started talking about Saint-Simon and what an illuminating commentary on the imperial court he offered, 
To my delight, Sir Ronald swiftly revealed himself as a great fan of Saint-Simon, whom he read, of course, in the French original, and wholeheartedly agreed about his relevance. Well, there you are. I have, as he would say, the suffrage of Sir Ronald. I don't doubt that he would have thoroughly disapproved of what I shall say over the next hour, but I do want to recruit him at least to approval of reading about Versailles. And let me be clear that it's not just a Roman historian who might question the relevance of Norbert Elias and the Duc de Saint-Simon. Elias's work made a big impact when it appeared in 69. But in the way of works of this ambition, it has provoked resistance and criticism as well as imitation. Can one really generalize usefully about the nature of courts and court societies? For all Marcus Aurelius's rather vague claims, circumstances can differ sharply at different periods and in different societies. A young Dutch historian, Jeroen Deindam, um, who was kind enough to invite me to a conference on royal courts in Istanbul a few years ago, set out to test the Elias model on some other court. And he systematically compared Versailles to Habsburg Vienna of exactly the same period. He found that similarities sat alongside some rather important contrasts. Notably, while the French court prided itself on open access, making the ceremonial of the levee in the king's bedroom so spectacular, the Viennese court preferred restraint and privacy, with access to the imperial bedroom limited to a very few intimates. <coughs> and, while, and while Versailles was vast, with a household numbering at its peak over 5,000 people, and with opportunities for residence within the palace keenly sought of by members of the nobility, Vienna never rose above 2,000 and didn't seek to house those outside the household itself. Another attack against Elias came from the great French historian Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie. In his Saint-Simon and the court of Louis XIV, he reread Saint-Simon to produce a very different account of the court world. He has harsh words to say of Elias. The problem, he says, is that the Annal School's approach, call it anthropological, sociological, or historical, ethnographic, as you will, was for far too long dominated, not to say suffocated, by Norbert Elias's way of looking at the problem. Until recently, Elias's views have all but monopolized the attention of the analyst whenever they turn their attention to the memoirs of the court system. Ladurie then proceeds to give his own very extensive analysis of Saint-Simon, completely ignoring the hapless Elias. And he only turns back to him right at the end of the book in an appendix in which he does a hatchet job, rejecting his central thesis that court manners transformed standards of civility, attacking him for inaccuracy and bad translation, praising Dyndam for quote, demolishing the ingenious and in places imposing edifice that Elias had built, and generally consigning the author to what he charmingly calls a tomb for Norbert Elias, suggesting that his ideas about court society were no more than, in the words of Saint-Simon, a sad image of a vast catafalque. Nice people, scholars. 
But perhaps the most important attack on Elias from the point of view of a Roman historian was that by a young German historian called Alois Winterling. I met Winterling, and you must forgive me for this constantly autobiographical current in my talk, on a visit to Munich in the late 80s. I had just finished writing my chapter on the imperial court. He had just published his first book, a study of the court of the Kurfürsten of Cologne, published in 1986. He was an early modern historian then. We were delighted to discover we had an interest in common, Norbert Elias. But whereas I was interested in the light that Elias could cast on the imperial court, he was interested in how little light Elias cast on the court of early modern Cologne, at which ceremonial and expenditure performed no rational function in maintaining control, but served merely to keep up appearances in interregional competitiveness. Winterling was not finished with his theme. Taken on in Munich as the assistant to Christian Meyer, he turned his attention to Roman history and specifically the Roman imperial court, publishing a sequence of articles that culminated in his book Aula Kaiseris of 1999, which claims to be the first book to study the imperial court as such. In his very thorough examination of the historiography, Norbert Elias is absent, except to be dismissed in a footnote as a hypothetical model inapplicable to other circumstances. It's therefore with some relief that I discovered that in the following sentence, he cites with approval my chapter in the Cambridge Ancient History as being mit Bezuch auf Elias, aber ohne anachronistische Wertungen. So, I was allowed to refer to Elias as long as I wasn't anachronistic. A narrow escape. By this stage, you may be feeling you've had enough of historiographical controversy and you want to get to the meat of the court, whether of Louis XIV or Roman emperors. But we're left with some rather troubling questions hanging in the air. Why did Elias' attempt to produce a sociology of court society make people so cross? And why did it take, after so many centuries of writing imperial history, someone trained as an early modern historian to write a book explicitly about the Aula Kaiseris? One of the nice points which Winterling makes is that while historians have been very happy to write books about the Concilium Principis and the Familia Kaiseris, which sound like lovely genuine Roman technical terms and are in fact complete modern fabrications, the abundantly attested Aula Kaiseris is buried in silence. In my view, the common factor is the vast gulf of experience, sympathy and understanding between pre-modern societies in which the 17th century is more akin to antiquity than to now and the form of modernity established in the 19th century. Especially revealing is Vinterling's analysis of how the great Theodor Mommsen managed to eliminate the imperial court from his Römische Staatsrecht. Indeed, Mommsen does have a chapter entitled Hof und Haushalt, Court and Household. But though Mommsen conceded the court's political importance in seiner auch politisch wichtigen Entwicklung, he says, 
because it was a wholly private institution without constitutional basis, he couldn't account for it in, st- in terms of Römische Staatsrecht. The components of the court are consequently scattered into unrelated sections in his text on the imperial family, the concilium principis, the military amstgefolge, the city administration, and so on. It's almost as if Mommsen was painfully aware of the realities of of court and was trying to suppress them. But that, for a liberal constitutionist of the mid-19th century, is just what we might expect. This is precisely the era in which public bureaucracies displace court households and monarchies are subjected by constitutions to a separation of the spheres of public and private. Mommsen created the sort of structure into which emperors he perhaps instinctively felt should have fitted, but obstinately refused to do so. At the same time, the insistent separation of public and private spheres that characterizes this 19th century writing meant that Ludwig Friedländer could accommodate a long discussion of the court in his history of manners, his Sittengeschichte, Because his theme was private and social life, he could allow the imperial court to be the dominant factor in shaping Roman manners. But because he was writing about private life, the political importance of the court, which Mommsen admitted, was lost to sight. And so, somewhere between Mommsen's constitutional history and Friedlander's history of manners, the imperial court was first seen and then painted out of the picture. So what enabled Norbert Elias to see behind this veil of modernism to a world which worked to different rhythms? His Herfische Gesellschaft may have been published in 1969, but it was no product of the 60s. His original manuscript was completed in 1933 when he was working in Frankfurt with Karl Mannheim. This was his Habilitationsschrift, And it's as much a product of the 30s and the traumas of Nazi Germany as Symes' Roman Revolution. Well, really, rather more so. He fled Nazi persecution, first to Paris, then to London. His mother died in Auschwitz. And though he supported himself by lecturing, as you've heard, in sociology at Leicester, the deep trauma shows in the fact that he published absolutely nothing for 30 years between 1939 and 1969. Only at that stage did he dust off his old Habilitationsschrift and publish it without any updating of the original text, hence giving um, a weapon to all his critics who point out that his bibliography is not up to date. Only adding as an introduction an essay on sociology and history and an appendix, and this I think is very interesting, on the notion that there can be a state without structural conflicts. This appendix is eloquent. In it, he takes issue with a very recent article published in 1967. Remember, his book actually came out in 69, so he must have just read it, in Der Spiegel by the Heidelberg historian Hans Mommsen, who was actually the great-grandson of Theodor Mommsen. Mommsen had been discussing the failure in recent historiography of the Nazi movement to talk about the SS. And he concluded it was because it was so riven with rivalries as to be incompatible with the model of totalitarian dictatorship. 
Mommsen expressed surprise that the charismatic Hitler had tolerated so much factionalism and rivalry within his ruling party. And at this point, Elias wakes up. This was no sign for him of weakness on Hitler's part. On the contrary, it was a strategy that carefully preserved rivalries that was for Elias one of the mechanisms of totalitarian control. Suddenly, in a debate about Hitler, he recognized the applicability of his long-forgotten and long-buried thesis on Louis, Louis XIV, whom he characterizes as using the court as a mechanism to encourage rivalries between competing currents in society and by keeping them under his surveillance to control them. That's to say, in retrospect, Elias recognized Hitler in Louis XIV, or do I mean he recognized Louis XIV in Hitler? His Habilitationsschrift proved to be an essay on totalitarianism. What then is it that Norbert Elias wanted to say about an absolutist court or a totalitarian regime? Even in a relatively short monograph, it's under 300 pages, it's not always easy to tell what an author is really saying. In fact, I constantly despair at the inability of, of, of of fellow scholars to read texts, as, at least as I read them. And I, <laughs> and I have to say, I don't think uh, Elias's critics read him particularly well. Ladurie, for instance, characterizes the book as being all about the impact of Versailles on demilitarizing the nobility and substituting military prowess with the civility of court manners, which forms part of the long history of civility in Europe. Now, that is indeed the principal theme of Elias's other book, a much longer book called The Civilizing Process, in two volumes in translation. Um, but it isn't the theme of the court society, which, in my view, is a much better book. Nor was Elias trying to offer a model for the comparative study of European courts, a point which seems to be, to be missed by my friends, Dyndam and Vinterling in their test cases. Elias knew perfectly well that there was a vast range of variation between historical courts. Of course there was. Indeed, he cites the comment uh, of Frederick the Great of Prussia on the court of Louis XIV. According to a contemporary source, Frederick II, hearing about this etiquette in Versailles, said that if he were the king of France, his first edict would be to create another king to hold court in his place. And indeed, these idle people who salute need another idle person to salute. (laughs) Frederick, whose idea was the Prussian one of a laborious regiment of useful functionaries, rubbished the central principles of court life and etiquette through which, according to Elias, Louis XIV kept control. Quite evidently, for Elias, a study of the court of Frederick the Great would come up with a very different picture. So why shouldn't the study of the courts of Vienna or Cologne? Elias wasn't interested in an exercise in comparative history. His focus on on Versailles and on the reign specifically of Louis XIV, which he knew well to be different from that of his predecessors and successors, is almost exclusive. He approached his subject not like a historian, but like a social anthropologist. 
What he wanted to understand was the logic that made one particular society tick at one particular moment in time. To criticize his model for not being applicable to Vienna or Cologne, or let's say the court of Henry VIII, or even better, the court of Elizabeth I, which had plenty to offer to Roman imperial historians, it's a bit like saying that Evans Pritchard's work on the Nua is flawed because it isn't applicable to Papua New Guinea. Of course it won't help your study of headhunters to ask whether, like the Nua, they valued cattle. The important thing for Elias wasn't the specific items of court society, like the ceremonial of the levee, but how specific items interconnected and made sense together in terms of what he called a figuration, a network of individuals bound together by historical circumstances, especially the outcomes of past power struggles, uh, in a relationship of dependence and social needs transmitted across generations. I'm effectively quoting him there. If we're to compare Versailles to Rome, it's not enough to find specific parallels. We must ask, in Elias's terms, how the Roman figuration compares to that of early modern France and what outcomes that has for the court society involved. But let's start, at least, with some individual items. Elias's account, Elias's account plunges straight into domestic architecture. They're not that of the Palace of Versailles, but the houses of the nobility. Drawing on the rather schematic account of Diderot in the Encyclopédie, a strictly hierarchical distinction is drawn between the palais of a king or prince, the hôtel of a noble, and the maison particulière of the bourgeoisie. This isn't merely a generalized grouping. The architectural distinctions are rigid, and it's not permitted to non-nobles to live in hotel any more than to nobles to live in palais. There is both exclusivity and obligation. You're not allowed to live in a house type not suitable to your rank. And at the same time, there's a pressing obligation on you to live in your proper house type. You can't downgrade or upgrade in this game. And that has important obligations. The hotel is enormously expensive, even ruinously so. It's structured around hierarchical distinctions and around the appropriate relation of public and private. Hierarchically, you enter the main court, passing to left and right the basse-cour, one for the stables, the other, uh, one for the stables and coach houses, the other for the kitchens. This is the zone for the domestique. Then you reach the appartement privé for the lord and lady, and they're kept separate, one to the left and one to the right, flanking the court. At the end of the great court, you reach the main reception area, consisting itself of two symmetrical seats, suites, the appartement de parade and the appartement de société. This is the only point at which I feel slightly frustrated not to have a, a picture up in front of you so you can you know, follow your way around the palace. But um, since Elias doesn't have a picture in his book, I reckon I can get away with it too. Elias is keen to underline that this 
distinction between the patron de parade and de société is not the same as a public-private distinction. The appartement de parade corresponds in some ways to the office where you do business in the morning. The appartement de société to the private quarters where you entertain your friends. But the great men of the Ancien Régime are public figures and reception in spaces which we think of as private, including the bedroom, is still part of their public obligation and essential for the maintenance of their social status. So it's all public. None of it is really private. At the time I first read this, as it happens, I was working on Roman domestic space. I was working on houses in Pompeii. And I was at once struck by a very close parallel to Rome and by the light it cast on the fundamentally different relationship between public and private in the Roman house to that of the post-industrial house. I duly reproduced Diderot's plan of that hotel, unlike Elias, in my study of the social structure of the Roman house. What Vitruvius has to say about building for, suitably for different ranks of society was in some ways astonishingly similar to Diderot's prescriptions for hotel and maison. But at the same time, there are some really important differences to register. Vitruvius offers a nuanced differentiation between the needs of different ranks. The nobles who hold public office versus bankers and tax farmers who need security, lawyers and advocates who need large gatherings in their houses, farmers who need storage for their produce, and so on. But there's no sense here that it's both a privilege and an obligation to use a specific house type, and that the advocate should not presume to live in the house of a noble with its great atria and tablina and rooms like those of public buildings. On the archaeological ground, I found there is no such rigid barrier, only a spectrum with infinite gradations. Roman society was indeed hierarchical, like that of Ancien Régime France, yet at the same time, it was fluid, open, and competitive. That difference matters for the figuration of Roman society. The same point also affects the ruinous expense of the great houses. Elias makes much of the way that the social pressure on the nobility to maintain a lifestyle that was beyond their means, combined with the traditional exclusion of the nobility from trade, meant that they're constantly exposed to financial ruin, which could only be compensated by attendance at court and the pursuit of benefices, favours, monopolies, and so on from the king. His observations are reminiscent of what Tacitus has to say about the ruin of the Roman nobility in his excursus on luxury under Tiberius. The once wealthy families of the nobility and the great and famous were brought down by their passion for magnificence. In those days, it was still acceptable for them to cultivate and be cultivated by the plebs, allied peoples and kingdoms. The more spectacular their wealth and the show of their households, uh, the higher they were held to be in reputation and following. But after they became victims of slaughter and the extent of their fame proved their undoing, others took to more prudent approaches. Um, so, in some senses, Tasta sees the nobility being ruined by their expensive houses, but not just by that. If Louis XIV sought to keep the nobility under control by ruinous expenses while promoting bourgeois newcomers who weren't subject to such expenses, that's the important thing about the bourgeois not being allowed 
to occupy hotel. In Rome, it was actually a free-for-all. All ranks could join in the competition of ruinous luxury, and their dependence on imperial favor was even more widespread. Elias's next theme is etiquette and ceremony. For, at last we meet the vast chateau of Versailles, with its endless succession of cours and its capacity to house thousands. Uh, Elias reckons up to 10,000 people lived in Versailles at its peak, though Vinterling brings this down to about 6,000. It's still a vast number of people uh, in one building or set of buildings. At the culmination of these symmetrical courts of diminishing size, in the central axial position, looking right back down the vista, is the king's bedroom. This is the theatre of the ceremonial of the levee and its strict hierarchy of admissions. First, the entree familière for princes of the blood and royal bastards, who are very important in Louis' court. Next, the grand entree, for the nobles appointed to office in the bedchamber. After them, the première entrée for the king's readers and entertainers, and only then the entrée de la chambre for ministers of state. And finally, a general entrée for those to whom the privilege had been permitted. However, preferable to all these five entrées was the wonderfully named entrée par la derrière, by the back door into the bedroom for the most favoured members of the royal family and courtiers who were allowed to enter at any time as long as a council of state was not being held. For Elias, this fetishization of etiquette has a precise purpose. It's not an ossified system which reproduces social distinctions. The court, he says, is like a stock exchange in which the individual stock is ever rising and falling. The king uses etiquette to manipulate and control the stock exchange, allowing promotions in the rigid hierarchy by variations in the etiquette, granting or withholding privilege in purely ceremonial contexts. The temptation to compare all this to the morning rituals of salutatio in the imperial palace is, of course, irresistible. Indeed, the influence of Versailles surely lies behind uh, the suggestion, for instance, by Friedländer, that there was a similar distinction of prima and secunda admissio to the imperial palace. Though actually, Seneca, who uses that terminology of prima and secunda admissio, actually attributes the practice to two tribunes of the early first century BC. Had there really been uh, a more elaborate system of grades of admission to the imperial salutatio, it's really odd that Seneca, who was extremely interested in and experienced in the imperial court, says nothing about it. So I think Vinterling's right to say there wasn't such a distinction. But what matters isn't the precise etiquette of the levee of the Bourbon court, nor the precise way Louis XIV manipulated. The key point is the constraint on the members of the ruling class to dance attendance on the ruler. And this applies whether they live in the palace or not. There's a payoff of mutual expectations here. In Rome, each and every senator seems to have been expected, when in Rome and not otherwise excused, to pay his morning, uh, morning respects to the emperor. Apologies for non-attendance were mandatory as can be seen in the letters of Pliny the Younger and Fronto. 
But the quid pro quo was that the emperor was expected to give preferential treatment to all senators, not just his favorites. The emperor greeted senators with a kiss. And one consequence, as the elder Pliny pointed out, was that when an unpleasant skin disease affecting the face called lichen broke out under Tiberius, it affected the emperor and the members of the upper orders accustomed to salute each other with a kiss. Tiberius responded by a ban on kissing. Distasteful, all this kissing may have been to some emperors, but it was worth their while because they kept the power brokers of the empire in their vicinity and under their eye. This is a widespread feature of the power structure of royal courts. To house the nobility under the royal roof as at Versailles is this historical exception, or or it's the taking of a general tendency to a a, a really ludicrous extreme. In Rome, senators didn't live in the Palatium, though they could live on the Palatium in the sense of the hill, but they certainly tried to live nearby the palace to minimize the morning commute for the courtesy call of its simile of Olympus as the Palatia Caeli, the palace of the heavens, with the doors of the nobility to right and left as you approach the palace itself, suggests that that proximity, the nobility to right and left, goes back to Augustus. Elias is surely right in suggesting that one of the many functions of the court is to keep a close eye on the powerful, those who potentially could pose a threat Louis XIV, traumatized by the attempted coup of the Fronde early in his reign, had good reason for keeping the nobility under a wary control. For Elias, his genius lay in the use of the court, its etiquette and rewards, to play off the nobility against other competing groups. It's possible to see Roman emperors as playing the same game. And indeed, Keith Hopkins, in Death and Renewal, suggested that there was a systematic playing off of a grand set against a power set. In a long footnote, you see I'm rather fond of footnotes, in a long footnote, uh, he draws explicit comparison to the court of Louis XIV, and he recommends a comparative perspective. I quote, To be sure, the Roman court was different, but in some ways it can be understood better by seeing how different it was from European absolutist courts and explaining the difference. Hopkins goes on, not unlike me, to invoke the authority of Sir Ronald Syme. Quote, An idea similar to ours has been put forward in one of his gnomic utterances by R. Syme. Quote, Between the useful and the decorative, the front ranks of the Senate divide sharply. Well, Syme was, as we've learned, a reader of Saint-Simon. But oddly enough, Hopkins makes, though he makes reference to Syme, he makes no reference to Elias, either in this footnote or anywhere else in his bibliography. Could he really have overlooked the author of his idea? I once uh, gently asked Keith what he made of Elias, having noticed this gap, and he explained to me enthusiastically that when he, Keith, was a young lecturer in sociology at Leicester, Elias was the guru from whom he had learnt. So the DNA traces there, even if he fails to make it explicit. However, it seems to me that to account for the imperial court as keeping the Roman nobility or even the whole senatorial... Try again. To account for it as keeping the Roman nobility or even the whole senatorial order under control is rather thin. 
There's more to it than that. Roman society, as I suggested earlier, was every bit as hierarchical as the court of Versailles, but rather more fluid and dynamic. One of the most striking features of the imperial court is the way in which members of different status groups constantly rub shoulders. Senators with these equestrians, who might be military or administrative officials, but constantly engaging with, and, and also both of them constantly engaging with the numerous freedmen, ex-slaves, who might serve in high offices of state, our rationibus, our libellis, and so on, but also as chamberlains, cubiculari, let alone butlers and mistresses, and worse, I particularly treasure Tastas' comment on the shoemaker-turned-court-gesture-turned-informer Vatinius as one of the foulest exhibits of the court of Nero, inter foidissima eius aulae ostenta. People of different status are simultaneously in competition with each other for power and influence and in collusion. One only has to read Suetonius' accounts of how the Caesars after Nero made their way up the slippery pole of court intrigue to observe this interaction. Otho, who makes his way into Nero's inner circle by cultivating an influential freedwoman of the court, Libertinum Aulicam Gratiosam, undaunted by her old age and decrepitude, which presumably means he took her as his mistress, and making sure whenever he dined with the emperor to tip the guards a gold piece each. Or there's Vitellius, son of a military commander who proved the perfect courtier, he too by having an affair with a libertina whose spittle he mixed with honey as a remedy and who cultivated both the wives and freedmen of Claudius systematically, asking Messalina for permission to remove and keep her imperial slipper and placing images of Narcissus and Pallas among his household gods. No surprise that his son, the future emperor, started his career as a sexual favorite of Tiberius on Capri. But even the solid Vespasian made made his way up by the same route, by taking Caenis, the freedwoman of Antonia, mother of Claudius, as his mistress, and appointed to the command of the invasion of Britain through the intervention of the freedman Pallas. After the ladders, the snakes. Vespasian was banned from the imperial company for falling asleep during Nero's singing. He asked a member of the admissions office, I, I'd like this as a literal translation of ex officio admissionis, what to do and where to go, and he was tartly told, to hell, abiri mor boviam, an offence which he generously overlooked when he shortly afterwards came to power. In this context, emperors had no need to subject the nobility specifically to a special uh, surveillance, let alone humiliation, Surviving and flourishing at court automatically came at the cost of humiliation. As one elderly courtier quoted by Seneca in his essay on anger put it, one survived at court by accepting insults and giving thanks for them. So far, Elias's account of the court of Versailles has focused on the tangibles of architectural structure and recurrent ceremonial. But now, in what seems to me the most perceptive bit of his study, he looks at how these factors affected the behavior of the participants. What he singles out is the art of observation, 
of shielding and restraining your own feelings and looking behind the mask of others to understand their true feelings. This is indeed Saint-Simon at his most characteristic. The text is full of this sort of stuff. Uh, Elias quotes the following. I soon noticed that X was becoming cold. I followed his conduct towards me with my eye to avoid confusing what might be accidental in a man charged with delicate affairs with what I suspected. My suspicions became certainties that caused me to withdraw entirely from him while giving nothing away. Saint-Simon is the consummate observer of the charade of court life. Everybody, including the observer himself, is trying to conceal their true feelings while penetrating those of others. It's the very opposite of the expression of passion and personal feeling of the Romantic era. Elias may be criticized for giving too much credence to a memoirist for whom satirical observation of others at court was a favorite sport. Saint-Simon just loved it. Can this really be generalized? Is such a concealment an inherent feature of court life? The odd thing is how extraordinarily well it does fit with contemporary observation of behavior at the Julio-Claudian court. Tastas, for instance, is almost obsessed with the elaborate charade of dissimulatio, the pretense that things are not as they are. His Tiberius delays accepting the throne because he wishes to dissimulate his actual desire for power. So he accepts the military guard and the essence of court power, ex cubiae arma ketra aulae. But he also takes his time about accepting because it gives him a chance to observe others and see what they think. And they, in turn, are all vigilant about revealing by some Freudian slip their true thoughts, which will come back to haunt them. Among Caligula's strengths, and I must apologize to you, I really wanted to give this lecture almost entirely about Caligula, and then Elias took over. Um, Among Caligula's strengths was his ability to dissimulate brought up in the terrifying atmosphere of the Tiberian court, watching his two brothers and his mother come to gruesome ends as victims of internal plotting, the last thing he needed to do was to reveal his anger or his fear. As Suetonius puts it, beset on all sides by the ambushes of those who tried to tempt or even coerce him to utter complaints, he never gave a single opening to them, as if he had obliterated what had happened to his family and as if nothing had happened to anybody and passing over his own feelings with incredible dissimulation, uh, showing nothing but obedience to his grandmother and those around, so that it was said of him, not without reason, that nobody had been a better slave or a worse master. And there, of course, is the problem. Dissimulation is servile, not the worthy behavior of free men, free to speak their minds. Imperial power deprives you not just of the freedom freedom to act, but to express yourself honestly. Just as for Elias, the concealment of feeling and the use of acute observation was a direct outcome of the structures of court life. So for Tacitus or Suetonius or Seneca, dissimulatio was the direct result of imperial power a necessary survival strategy. So far, then, I've suggested that, allowing for some important differences of situation, there are striking parallels between the court society of Versailles and the imperial court of the early empire. But at this point, there seems to me to be a missing piece in Elias's puzzle. He sees the court of Louis 
1914 as the outcome of a specific historical and political conflict, a tension between social groups, the old nobility and the rising bourgeoisie, that came to a head in the Fronde. Louise Corte uh, is a mechanism designed both to dissipate and to maintain those tensions, making the king the key to stability. But though political tensions are essential to this picture, it seems as if the sociologist was far too interested in what he calls the perpetuum mobile of court etiquette to examine further the mechanisms of conflict. And this is where Ladoury scores a palpable hit against Elias. Saint-Simon has got a great deal to say about these mechanisms, as uh, Ladoury first pointed out in a 1983 article in Annales. Political conflict and competition expressed itself through the formation of cabal around various members of the royal family. Classic analysis is Saint-Simon's sketch of the situation in 1709 with the reign of Louis on its last lap. The court was more divided than ever, he says. To speak of cabal might be too much, and the proper word for what went on eludes me. So I will say cabal even though it is too strong, with the warning that it exceeds what I mean to imply. The court was divided among three parties, which included all the leading personages, and he then goes on to explain how it split between the supporters of Madame de Maintenon, the king's consort of Monseigneur, the king's son and heir apparent, and the Duc de Bourgogne, the king's grandson. Uh, had Saint-Simon lived in the internet age, perhaps he would have realized that the word he was groping for was network. These cabal, or networks, are not in competition for power since heredity determines the throne, but they do compete for influence at court, and each cabal is formed through a combination of members of the royal family, nobles, ministers of state, influential members of the king's household. As to say, there's no social block determined by status or class. It's in the context of competition for influence through these rather fluid and constantly changing groupings that Saint-Simon's powers of observation and concealment are so important. In a passage, uh, which I'll confess to having cited before, but it's much too good to leave out, uh, Saint-Simon relishes the spectacle created by the unexpected death in 1711 of Monseigneur, who died of smallpox. So this is the heir apparent dying. Quote, Since the king was at Marly, I felt unconstrained and could study the crowd at my ease, allowing my eyes to dwell on those who from various motives were much or little affected. Thus, I followed the movements of certain personages and endeavoured stealthily to penetrate their innermost thoughts. For indeed, to one who knows the inner life of a court, these first moments after some tremendous event are intensely gratifying. 
Each face reminds one of the cares and intrigues, the laborious efforts to advance a private fortune or form of strengthen a cabal, the cunning devices designed and executed for such purposes, the attachments at various degrees of intimacy, the estrangements, dislikes, hatreds, the unkind turns played, the favours granted, the tricks, petty shifts, baseness of some individuals, the dashing of the hopes of some in mid-career, the stupefaction of others who at the summit had thought their ambitions fulfilled. At such times, one's glances fly from face to face, trying to penetrate the very soul. Such an amalgamation of ambitious people and momentous events is a delight to those who understand. And ephemeral though it may be, it provides one of the greatest pleasures to be enjoyed at courts. And Saint-Simon did enjoy himself at court. The only observer of court life who comes anywhere near him in perception seems to me to be Tacitus. And his account of the death of Britannicus could have been written by Saint-Simon himself. As the young Britannicus experiences a Caesar a seizure at Nero's dinner table in front of the other members of the imperial family and various courtiers, attention focuses on reactions. Trepidation spread among those sitting round. The imprudent fled. Those who had a deeper understanding remained rooted to the spot and staring at Nero, who, of course, gives nothing away. But Agrippina, though she concealed her expression, betrayed a flash of panic and consternation. Octavia, too, young though her years, had learned to suppress all grief, affection, and feeling. This dissimulatio at which Caligula excelled was, in fact, second nature to the entire imperial house. And it's a wonder that even the most penetrating courtiers could see beyond those practiced masks. Or perhaps they couldn't, and they were imagining things. Neither could they know then, nor can we know now. A Saint-Simonian model of cabal, or in modern term, court networks, seems to me rather helpful for making sense of the Roman imperial court. Two features of these groupings, which apply well to Rome, can be noted. First, the cabal, or network, is inherently informal and covert, not formal and explicit. The links between individual players are not fixed, but multiple and easily reassigned. Unlike the secret societies, the Freemasons, the Carbonari and the like, which characterize Bourbon Naples, there are no secret initiation rites, no oaths to remain faithful to the group. It's fluid and fissile. It operates by winks and nudges. The more open and explicit the cabal is, the more threatening it becomes. Dissimulatio is necessary for the survival of the cabal itself. Secondly, it's composed of a mixture of statuses, all of which need to be present if it's to be effective. It needs at least one member of the imperial family, excluding the emperor, who by definition cannot be part of the cabal since the aim of every network is to maximize the effectiveness of its links with the emperor. It also crucially cuts across gender barriers, including female members of the imperial family, also household members like freed women, especially mistresses, and those who have hot access to power. This adds to the secretive nature of the cabal. It cuts across social status and should include top sen senatorial amici principis, top equestrian officials, top freedom, freedmen secretaries, but also doorkeepers and chamberlains and lowlife. All of these have different types of access to imperial power, and the strength of them is to be able to deploy several approaches for a pincer movement. 
If these two features seem to be in common between Versailles and the Palatine Hill, there are also contrasts to note. The cabal under Louis XIV didn't actually rock the boat. Elias, who is trying to explain this, attributes success to the stifling etiquette which allowed Louis to play people off against each other. The cabal of the Roman imperial court were more volcanic, generating repeated crises. The best way to destroy a rival cabal was to flush it out into the open by accusations of adultery and conspiracy against the emperor. Why, people might ask, all these hush-hush meetings and dinners between the members of the cabal, they must be up to something, adultery, conspiracy, or both. Such accusations were highly effective, leading regularly to condemnations and murders. Hence, the need to conceal what was going on was even greater. Second major contrast lies in the boundaries between public and private. While Versailles and Rome may have in common that the public invades the sphere of the private and the private of the public in a way that's almost incomprehensible to us, though I have to say, having lived for 17 years in public settings, first of a director's apartment in Rome and then in a master's lodge in Cambridge, I have some inkling of that invasion of the private by the public, and I rejoice in the real privacy I'm now experiencing. But that doesn't mean public and private are wholly elided. The modern distinction between place of work and place of residence, office and home, hasn't yet emerged in the Roman world. But the Roman distinguished sharply between the forum and the streets as a public sphere and the home as a private one. And uh, only that by holding public office, men became public figures, even in the privacy of their homes. And I think it's that different contrast between pr public and private, which in a sense causes Mommsen to stumble, because uh, uh, he knows, like a Roman, that Roman emperors ought to keep the public and the private separate. Well, I'm afraid that I'd never have persuaded Sir Ronald Syme to read Norbert Elias. Though I do rather like to imagine he wouldn't have been completely averse to my vision of the Roman imperial court as the place where rival networks competed for power, influence, and advantage, and for which the greatest danger was to raise the veil of dissimulatio and to be exposed as a network. Perhaps I may be permitted in my last moment to call one final witness in support the biographer Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, who else? Here is a man who owed everything, not just to his learning, which was considerable, but to his connections. Friend to the well-connected younger Pliny who wrote on his behalf to Trajan, he found himself under Hadrian holding the sort of high secretarial office that had once been held by imperial freedmen. He also found himself a colleague of another of Pliny's protégés, Septicius Clarus, who rose to the position of Praetorian prefect. And yet, according to the life of Hadrian, which was written in imitation of Suetonius's own biographical methods, and his imitator must have taken great pleasure in turning the attention to Suetonius himself, the two of them were sacked by their imperial master. I quote, Hadrian appointed successors for Septicius Clarus, the prefect of the guard, and Suetonius Tranquillus, master of the correspondence, along with many others, because without his instructions, they had behaved with his wife Sabina in a manner 
more familiar than the respect of the imperial court demanded. Familiarius quam reverentia domus aulicae postulabat. What had they been up to? Had Suetonius been reenacting the sort of scenes of depravity that he reports of the Julio-Claudian emperors? Or did Suetonius, Septicius, and many others form a network around the Empress Sabina that was simply too successful in the pursuit of influence and advantage and had its cover blown by its enemies? I leave the choice to you. Thank you.